Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done as I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took that stone, the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way, I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you now and we ask that you would speak to us and speak life to us this morning so that we may fully comprehend the good news of grace found in Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we sit in this moment, in this time, in the 21st century, we are on the cusp of, of some amazing breakthroughs in man-made technology. Um, we're living in an incredible era. There, there are things that are going on now that if you had told me when I was in my teens or my 20s that this would be the case, I would have told you there's no way. These are, these are impossible things. Forget about it. But to my surprise, many of these things that we now just sort of take for granted are the things that we thought might be impossible not too long ago. I mean, just think of it watches, for example. Watches now are incredible they, they can tell you if you have an issue with your heart. Um, these watches can call 911 if you fall down. They'll, they'll call emergency numbers for you. These watches can tell how far you've walked today. They can let you know that you've walked two and a half miles so far today and encourage you to keep going. Uh, right before having that heart issue, that it let you know you have, and a fall after walking your two and a half miles, calling 911. If you're lost out in the woods, these watches, many of the models that have GPS, they will with pinpoint accuracy let them know where you are in the woods and you need help. I almost forgot to mention, these watches, they also tell time. 
It's amazing. We also have amazing breakthroughs in AI technology. There are apps now on your phone that when you ask it to compose an email, it will write your friend a brilliant, beautiful, heartfelt email from you. And it will sound like it's coming from you. You can also take these same apps and you could say, hey, could you talk to me as though you are George Washington or Elvis Presley or someone else? And it will be able to pick up all the nuances of the types of things that George Washington or Presley or someone else would talk as and talk to you. It's incredible. It, it is said that AI technology right now is on track within the next decade, plus or minus a few years, to reach human-level intelligence. And then, our space programs. Space exploration was on such a lull for so many years, but it has picked back up. Now, uh, we, we are on track within the next year or two to launch a, a rocket that could take a hundred people to the moon. Um, it's, it's been launched. It's had trouble landing, but just give it some time. They're, 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 I know you won't be the first one to ride, but give it some time. And, and uh, groups of 100 may be taking a regular trip around, around Earth or to the moon or further. And, and through all of these advancements, what's the promise to us? It's not being told explicitly. It's implicit. What's the pull? Is this not the good life that we're living? The good life to live a life of blessing and human flourishing, amazed at the accomplishments of man? And we think this is all so new, this sort of cutting-edge technology. But I just want to remind you, even as we sit in the 21st century, we still don't know how on earth they formed the pyramids. The technology that was used to build up these amazing, beautiful pyramid towers, we're still not fully sure exactly, we can suppose, but we're not sure quite how they did it. These pyramids that rise to heaven. You see, we live in a long stream of humanity going back thousands and thousands now of years to which the goal of pursuing blessings was by the work of your hands using technology. We believe that we really truly can give ourselves the ultimate good life and I would argue from a Christian perspective, the notion is silly. Uh, even repulsive, because I think as much as we operate within that sort of framework, in that sort of worldview, perhaps more subtle but similar, we see here in our passage this morning the temptation to gain the blessings of God through the works of our hands and our fingers. This morning's passage gives us a portrait of that type of character who wants to gain the blessings of God through what they do. And it begins with a scoundrel named Jacob, a punk who wanted to buy and trick his way into the blessings of God. Jacob's name, remember this, dog ear this, Jacob's name means deceiver, trickster. To help us guide our time through this passage this morning, I want to look at the past, the present, and the future. I want to look at specifically Jacob's past, Jacob's present, and Jacob's future. Look at verse 10 through 11 with me here in, in chapter 28. And I want you to see this, where Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran. 
And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place he had put under his head. He laid down in that place to sleep. Question, where's Jacob? What's he doing out there? What's going on? How did he get out in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the night with nowhere to stay? This is where we must begin, you and I, with Jacob's past. Recall from earlier scenes in Genesis, Jacob was not used to leaving home. This is not a guy who goes backpacking very often. He mostly stays at home. He seems to be a mama's boy. He was a homebody. He was used to an overprotective mother who seemed to baby him. But here, in this scene, he's, he's off. He's away from home. He's away from his father, away from his mother. He's been exiled, actually, from his home. This was all caused by a crisis back home. A relationship crisis on one front. And I would argue on a deeper level and a more important level, there's a spiritual crisis that is actually at play as well in this scene. What happened? Well, on the family crisis side, deception was a sin that was passed from grandfather to son to grandson. Both Abraham and Isaac concealed the true identity of their wives. In unbelief, they, you know, they mistrust God. They swindle to move their way forward. And what we see is Jacob effectively learned how to be this sinner, passed down to him from his grandfather and his father. Recall how Jacob's older brother Esau was a hunter. And Esau went off to go hunting, but like many of you, this October came back with nothing. And are hungry, very hungry. And Esau comes back and he's, he's, he's wanting to eat. And he comes upon his brother, Jacob, who had made this bowl of lentil stew. And Jacob made Esau sell him his birthright for the bowl of beans. Now, culturally, uh, this eldest brother would have had the larger share of inheritance. But now Esau, the eldest uh, had been swindled out of his birthright. It now is going to go to Jacob. Further, Jacob's mother, Rebekah, had schemed. She schemed to steal the blessing from his brother Esau so that Jacob would receive the blessing from father Isaac. And therefore, the family crisis that's going on here of swindling and deception goes right and is intertwined with the spiritual crisis. The deception of Jacob was to trick the father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing, the birthright. Now, it's interesting because blessing and birthright, these two Hebrew words, sound familiar, and there's a bit of a play on words. Birthright, bakora, and blessing, baraka. And so, at the end of all this, Jacob schemed his way to getting the bakora and the baraka together. He pretends to be Esau. He goes in, and Jacob gets his father, Isaac, to give him the family blessing. And recall this blessing that was passed, being passed down was a blessing that came, it was given from God to grandfather Abraham. I will bless you and I will not curse you. I will give you a land, a nation, and a people. And this saying is so true that you can fool some of the people some of the time, but not all the people all the time. And eventually as Esau finds out what had happened, that he'd been schemed, not only out of the Bakorah, but out of the Baraka, well, he's angry. And now, Jacob is on the run. He must be in exile. And so this is why he's out in the desert. He's running from his brother who wants to now kill him. And so he's fleeing and he's told, you must go off, go to Haran. What a mess. Here we have 
a messy family. A family with issues. From a few passages, a family that looks like God should back away from them. Uh, He should not want to deal with such a mess. And so I ask you, what about your family? What about your family here this morning? What about your family that maybe you gathered with just recently on Thanksgiving? You probably would not have to look far too to see a mess. Um, Perhaps in your immediate families, you you look and you see issues with your parents or your grown-up children or your grandchildren or with siblings or extended families. You find the strained relationships, you find the overt sin, you find hyper-legalism, you find abandonment, and you find addiction, and on and on we go. So that many of us, we can say, who, who here does not have a mess? I think if we all got up here and gave story after story, each one of us would say, yep, my family too. Yep, my family too. And Genesis won't let us forget it is in these types of families that God uses. God uses messy families for his purpose. And if God can use messy families for his great purpose, then maybe, surely, he can use your family. Jacob, he's swindled. His brother, to get his birthright, he has secured the spiritual blessing, leaving home. He's running for his life. He's living in exile. And now, as one pastor has put it, I think Jacob is out here in the desert, nowhere to go, nowhere to stay. And he's probably regretting the past. He's lonely in the present. And he's unsure about what the future holds. So with Jacob on the run, trying to reach distant relatives up in Haran, he runs out of daylight. And if you've ever been out and you're in the middle of the wilderness and you're running out of daylight, eventually you are looking for the Hilton Hotel and there's no Hilton. And so you're looking, okay, fine, Motel 6, bug infested Motel 6, but there's nothing. And so he decides to just camp out there in the wilderness. So you take a rock and maybe you take one of your blankets and you sort of fold it up to make a makeshift pillow. And here he is, regretting the past, lonely in the present, unsure about the future. And Jacob's past leads him then into his present. This is right where chapter 28 goes. So now we look at Jacob's present in verses 12 through 13. He dreamed and behold... There was a ladder set up on earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac, the land of which you lie. I will give to you and your offspring. First, we see that Jacob, while he is sleeping here, the Lord speaks to him in the strangest of dreams. I don't know if you're like me. I've had some rather strange dreams, even recently, bizarre dreams. Recently, I was looking out the window of my house in my dream, and a moose walked by that was the size of a large dump truck, an impossible-sized moose. Now, if you're an interpreter of dreams, see me after service. I'm still trying to figure out what this means. But Jacob seems to be having a vivid dream that is not like these weird moose dreams, he's having this vivid, meaningful dream to him. He understands there is real inherent meaning about this because God is using it to speak to him. And he sees a ladder. What may be more accurate is not that he sees a ladder, but he actually sees a stairway, a stairway to heaven. 
You know, like Led Zeppelin's song. The song goes, there's a lady who sure all that glitters is gold and she's buying a stairway to heaven. What's the idea of the song? Well, the idea is this. Well, if you get enough money, uh, even hard-earned money, she could gain the blessing of God by getting what she deep down needs, a place that she can dwell in for eternity, a place of luxurious wealth and prosperity. But friends, this idea goes far, far back in time. This is not just an issue of the 70s rock and roll. This goes back thousands of years. Common to the region was what was called a stairway or a ladder or really what we understand now is a ziggurat. A ziggurat is a true stairway to heaven. Picture with me, if you will, going back to the pyramids, this ancient technology that is incredible, but these pyramids, they, these ziggurats were like the shape of a, of a pyramid in that they kind of went up like this from, from multiple angles, but not in straight lines. They were tiered much like a wedding cake might be tiered. So they kind of had these flat platforms. Now, each step that get to the top was far too tall for a human to step up. And the top of it was cut off. So the top was very flat, like a wedding cake might be. And what was the point? The point was the very top of the ziggurat was a place that you would invite the gods from the heavens to come down and land on the top. And then because the, the steps are so big, they could walk down the big steps and, and be oohed and awed by your ladder that you built up to, to heaven. Today, if you want, you can take a flight and you can go to Iraq and Iran and you'll see, um, even in South America, there are some forms of what we call ziggurats. Why do we even bring this up? Because it's important for us to realize this was not the first ziggurat or tower in Genesis. This is not the first ladder, nor the stairway. There was another tower that was built up as tall as it could be, so it too reached into the heavens. Remember the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. It was constructed so that by its height and its grandeur, it, the people would make a name for themselves by this tower. Now, you need to understand that the, the tallest ziggurat we have now that we can measure is about 300 and some change feet in height, and it's estimated that it's really only half its original height because of time and decay and crumbling. It's lost much of its height. So the original ziggurats may have gone up as high as 600 feet. Uh, the Coin 6 Tower in Portland in Portland's about 500 feet. So that just tells you how tall these things were. And here, um, with a, a, a the Tower of Babel, it was so tall and so big, how could God possibly ignore it. He'd have to come down in response to it. He would see the landing pad at the top of it and he'd say, I must come, I must land, I must engage with these people who've invited me and done such a tremendous job inviting me with their stairway. And he'd have to come down. But do you remember, God does come, doesn't he? He comes to the tower. He's very excited to come to the tower, but not for the reasons they're hoping for. When God comes to the Tower of Babel, it's not in joy, it's in judgment, isn't it? And so he doesn't say, well done, you guys are great, you impress me. No, he scatters them in their languages. He confuses it and the whole project is put on halt. And so think of the modern towers today that we build. You could think, of course, Coin 6 Tower and those kind of, sure, you could think of that. But somewhere, I think we can see this at work in the church as well. Um, 
we're coming out of the time, the 80s and 90s, where, hey, if you build it, they will come. You build enough, big enough church building, it'll be full. Um, the idea with our technology if in the church, if we can dim the lights, if we can get enough images flashing and, and going to and fro on the stage, if we can get enough color coming up here on the stage, if we have uh, music that is in line with your favorite Christian rock band, if we, if we do all of these things just right, God will have to show up and bless us. He will have to be amongst us, won't he? I think we can do this collectively as a church using technology as a means by which we try and grab a hold of the Lord and make him work in our midst. I think we can also do this individually where we can say, if I get my life together, God will have to bless me. If I secure the right job, if I pay off my debts, if I volunteer more, if I work hard to mend those broken relationships, if I stand for the right issues, then God owes me a decent life. Friends, this is merely just buying your stairway to heaven. So here this morning, we have a, a tale of two towers, one in Babel, one in Bethel. The one in Babel is man-made for man-made purposes, while the other one is constructed by God to bring grace and mercy for Jacob. This tower, this, this tower at Bethel, this stairway that God comes down, he's not coming in judgment in Jacob's dream. No, uh, he's actually coming for blessing. To this rascal, to this rebel, to this deceiver, he's coming to bring blessing. Angels are going up and down this ladder, which shows us this is indeed a link, a stairway to, not just to heaven, but also, more importantly to our point, from heaven. It wasn't one that Jacob had bought. Remember, Jacob has no provisions at hand. He probably hardly has a dime to his name. And it's to this deceiver that God comes. Jacob sees a ladder, a stairway, or in our English, it reads here that, he's, that he sees the Lord stood above it. Now, if we read that straightforward in our English Bibles, it almost looks like I see the stairway, the ziggurat going to heaven, and I see God standing up above, maybe with a megaphone shouting down. But I, there are some modern translations that get this correct, and even most likely in your Bible, it will have a little asterisk and say, or stood beside him. So there's a disagreement in Hebrew. Is it the Lord stood beside Jacob or above the ladder? I argue that it is in context that the Lord stood right with him there. The Lord came down in his dream to be with him in that moment. And the reason is, is later we, we see actually that the same prepositional phrase is used here in a context of being God, of God being right beside him. And he goes up from him, meaning up from Jacob. Also in our passage this morning, Jacob says, God was up there. No, no, no. He doesn't say God was up there. He says, God was here, right here. And I didn't know it. He didn't say, I saw God up there. No, Jacob, he didn't have to ascend or climb this stairway. No, God in grace comes down to him. Friends, Jacob's encounter with God here in his dream, it was unsought, unexpected, and it was undeserved. He was a liar, a cheat. He's on the run for his life. And Jacob in no way deserves this blessing from God. In fact, this Jacob, this deceiver, deserved to be scattered like those at Babel. This sinner deserves judgment. 
But friends, remember, Christ is a friend of sinners. He must have thought it was all over at this point. He'd run out of daylight. He's lonely in the present. He's uncertain about the future. And it was when Jacob was, I think, at his lowest moment here that God appears to him. Why? To show that it was all of grace. Unmerited, undeserved grace. God was with him. The grace of God is greater than the grasping of Jacob. See the words that God speaks over him here in verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it, or I'm going to say beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. The words that God speaks to him here are are not insignificant. These words of blessing are, are promising Jacob riches and blessing beyond what he was even hoping for. First, the very land that his head was sleeping on that night would not be a pit stop for him, but it would belong to him. Jacob here sleeping on the ground doesn't have a dollar to his name. He can't afford the rock, but God promises him a great plot of land. Why is this land, why would it be important? Would it be important because it's large? Perhaps. But I think the real emphasis, the real reason this land is important to Jacob is because if what Jacob is seeing in his vision is true, God is present with him here in this land. I think the land has value because this is where the Lord is present. And yes, it could be a a land of bountiful plenty or the desert, but most important, God is there. Second, he is currently unmarried at this point. He's alone without children, but he's been promised thousands of descendants. His offspring would be like the sand of the sea. So children will likewise need to be there in this land spread out to the north and the south and the east and the west. And so this promise then is no small thing. But even further, there's this incredible statement in verse 15 that God will not just come down here at Bethel, but he's going to go with Jacob wherever he goes. See verse 15. He says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Recall that Jacob is in this land for the moment, but he's in in his exile where he's going to end up. He'll be there for 20 years. And during this long stint, he would be away. And I have to imagine there'd be moments over the 20 years where he's going, was that dream real? Did God really in this magnificent way show up to me and make all of this so clear to me? Is that God still my God? Does he still see me? Does he know? Does he care? And he's going to have to... Hold on to the blessing of God through that time of waiting. So perhaps this morning, you too, maybe you're looking at your life here this morning and you're looking and as you look, look at what you're running away from. Look at maybe how very little you have. Maybe you don't have a lot to your name. Or do you look at your past sin? Do you look at your past deception? And do you wonder, could God care for a rascal like me? Will he be with me? Will his promises remain true to me? Doesn't God tell us even here this morning, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this invokes a response from Jacob that God would be with him wherever he goes. 
So let us catch the details in verses 16 through 22. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and he said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now notice, Jacob didn't wake up that morning and go, (laughs) it's all mine. I'm going to be rich. He didn't wake up and say, after all this, I am going to make a name for myself because God can't ignore me here. Nor did he start to measure the land and say, well, how many apples and pears can I grow on this land? And how I'm going to just eat until I'm stuffed. No, he, his first response was this. The Lord is here. His first response that gives him amazing, amazing joy is the Lord is here. Friends, to want the blessings of God and not to want God himself is really to forfeit God and his blessings. The two in scripture are tied together. Jacob seems to be amazed at God's outpouring of grace And therefore, he makes a pillar of remembrance to signify the importance of this very moment. Uh, He's naming the place Bethel. What does Bethel mean? House of God. And we can almost read it as if Jacob is then going to bargain with God. Like, okay, Lord, I see you're with me. Now, if you do this and you do that, well, then I'll give you, yeah, maybe a, tell you what, fifth, nah, I'll go a tenth. I'll give you a tenth of everything I got if you're with me. But I think it makes better sense in the context to see Jacob replaying what God had said. So he's rehearsing this mini covenant, if you will. In context, he's replaying, stating, God, you've said you're going to do this and you're going to do this. This is incredible. And my response, I guess, will be, I don't have anything at the moment, but whatever I have, I'm just going to give back to you a tenth of all things. I think just as an aside, Jacob could have easily rested his walk on the Lord by completely living in the experiences of grandfather Abraham or father Isaac and saying, I know God had related to my grandfather and my dad, and I'm just going to rest in their relationship with the Lord. But what we see him doing here in this moment is engaging God in his own personal relationship, responding to the covenant that has been made. And I think it's an important uh, reminder for us in our family moments is to consider, are you and I, are we resting our walk with the Lord in our family lineage? Are we resting our faith in our parents or our grandparents walk with the Lord? Or do you have that indwelling faith and relationship and walk with Christ today that's yours personally? Well, Jacob's past left him on the run. And he was lonely and left him pondering if there was any hope for him. Not only has God come down to the lonely, but he's revealed his plans to bless. Not only all this, but he has revealed the very entrance into heaven to Jacob. And Jacob has been told of God's presence with him wherever he goes. Jacob's past and present really leads him here to his future. 
which bridges now to this moment we sit in today. Jacob's future. What Jacob could not see clearly, but you and I, through the lens of Jesus Christ this morning, with the blessing that has been bestowed on Jacob, which was ultimately fulfilled in Christ, this is a far greater blessing than Jacob could have possibly imagined. You see, Jacob, he sets up this pillar to note this important scene. And later, as Moses recounts for us, the Israelites, they're going uh, through their own full exile and they can look at Jacob with appreciation that God was not just with Jacob, but God was with them also. But then for 1,700 years, there's no mention There's no allusion, there's no reference to this strange scene in Genesis at all. Amazingly, this scene is brought to mind in the opening of John's gospel in John chapter 1 at verse 43. There we see that Christ is walking down the road, he's calling his 12 disciples. And I'm going to pick up at John chapter 1 verse 43 where we read, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was, was, he was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And then he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see a heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, hold on, walk with me through this for just a moment. It's very interesting. Jesus makes the reference here to this Jacob scene by saying, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. What was Jacob's name? Deceiver. He says, here, Nathaniel, here's one who's not a deceiver. Now recall that here, when, when he brings this up, he, Jesus never says stairway. He never says ladder. He's talking about angels ascending and descending on something, which is in reference to Jacob's dream. But who are the angels ascending and descending upon? It's Jesus himself. You will see the angels ascending and descending upon the son of man. You see, Jacob, friends, when he was out in the wilderness, He was having a dream. But here, Nathaniel, in whom there is no deceit, what is he doing? He's not seeing a dream. He's seeing the reality. He's seeing the fullness. He's seeing the ziggurat, the stairway. Jesus Christ himself, the link to heaven itself. And this stairway, this staircase comes down, not just to Nathaniel. This stairway, this link to heaven comes down, not just to the 12 apostles, but to you, to you here this morning. Jesus comes to stand, not above you to holler down, but to come amongst you, to stand beside you. He has come down. He's come to people who do not deserve him, 
Come to deceivers like you and I, sinners who are in need of righteousness. He's come to live the life that you could never live and to die the death that you deserve. It is what we come to celebrate this time of year when we come to Advent, the arrival, Emmanuel, God with us, to our wandering state, our place of need. He came down to bring us the full reality of those things that were promised to Jacob. Yet Jesus doesn't come down, does he? He doesn't just come down. He also goes up. Jesus, in order to secure this relationship with us, he goes up under the cross. He goes up, absorbing the full wrath of God for those who believe. And second, Christ descends into heaven, into full glory. Now this morning, you may feel alone. This morning, you may feel exiled. You may wonder, is God with me? Friends, with Jesus, there is no mystery. You can't buy this. You can't bargain for it. There's no postulating. In John chapter 14, Jesus says it very clearly to you this morning. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How will we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Friends, Jesus is saying, you want to know the real stairway? You want to know the real ziggurat? The real tower to climb up to me? I am the tower. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the stairway, Thomas. And Jacob, through his past, even though it was checkered, in in Genesis, his future was checkered. But because of the true stairway, he would have, by grace, through faith, a relationship to God that would far outlast his earthly life. It has been said, the determining factor in my relationship to God is not my past nor my present, but Christ's past and present. Because the grace of God is greater than the grasping of Jacob. Church, the grace of God is greater than the grasping of you and I here this morning. For he is the way, the stairway, the Bethel, our true home. He is the anointed pillar. Lastly, as Nathaniel cries out, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And so my hope this morning in prayer is that we would all believe this. Even as we sit here in our very own Bethel, we sit here in our house of God. My prayer is that you and I would say, God is in this place. God is in this place and I didn't even know it. Yes, the Lord is with us, even us. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would grant us faith and hope in you. Lord, we long to recognize your presence amongst us even now. We thank you for that unmerited grace that comes so freely and abundantly to us in Christ. Would we be a people who sing and rejoice Knowing this is true, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.